Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. Welcome back to the Seven Sage Admissions podcast, How to Get Into Law School. In this episode, we're going to be discussing school specific statements. I'm Jake, and again, joining me are Brigida and Aaron. And how are we all doing today? Doing good. Doing great. Thanks. Are listeners anxious to hear my minivan update, do you think? Because I was able to... Pur- well, if nothing I- else, I- I'm, I'm interested to hear. <laughs> I was able to purchase a minivan, but I, I didn't purchase the Sienna. I bought a plug-in minivan, the only one that plugs in, which is a Chrysler Pacifica. Nice. I felt pretty self-conscious purchasing a-, a Chrysler, actually, to be honest with you. But uh, Man, that's old school. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, did, I didn't know the Pacifica was a plug-in these days. Yeah. Or had, had a plug-in option. Yeah, it's okay. it gets that's 30 neat. miles on a charge. So I'm ex- as excited as you could be about, you know, as a person who's just purchased a minivan. But <laughs> So if Chrysler wants to sponsor this podcast, I'm willing to do so. <laughs> and to hear the further adventures and updates about that. Is it all-wheel drive? No, I, call, I called my car guy after you said you had all-wheel drive. And he said, he knows where I live. He says, I don't need it. And that gave me the permission to purchase the Chrysler, which doesn't have, none of them have all-wheel drive. Okay. Okay. He didn't preface it by saying, well, you know, with global warming, that's becoming less of an issue in New England. So we don't need to worry about that anymore. Like it's, it's all flat where I live. On the other hand, it snows and ices over a lot. So, yeah. Oh, well, hey, that, that just means that we're all in a good mood today, right? For, <laughs> yeah. To talk about these. And so, hey, as, as a quick definition for our audience out there, we've, we've talked about personal statements. We've talked about diversity statements and then also why school X statements, which is where a school directly asks you, why are you interested in our school? So now what we're talking about today are questions beyond that. So beyond the personal statement, beyond a diversity statement, beyond a why school X that you occasionally see on schools applications. And they tend to break into a couple different categories. There are some that are a bit more academic in nature and others that are more non-academic, kind of get-to-know-you, fun-type questions, as fun as a law school application can be. And then some are required, some are not required, some are you should highly consider putting it in there type of, of questions. And we thought that, you know, for the purposes of today, it could be useful just to go through a couple of the, the most common categories we tend to see, maybe talk about some of our the questions that come up the most often when working with our students and things of that nature. So one statement that kind of hovers all of this and, and really the, the, the one that if you were to ask us, hey, what are the academic school specific statements? Kind of the flagship one there is the Yale 250. And so, Brigitte, to put you on the spot, can you summarize the Yale 250 for our audience? What is it and what kind of what are what do you we think the Yale admissions office is going for there? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, it's 250 because it's a 250 word essay. So that's that's important to know (laughs) for those just coming to the process. You want to write about an idea or a theory or an issue from your background that's particularly meaningful to you or interesting to you. And so it could be it's super broad and wide, but we do understand that they're looking for something quite academic slash intellectual. So it's not the place to be, you know, like humorous or flip like you might be with some others. But yeah, I think it's it's short. And in some ways, that's a good thing. But in the, on the other hand, you really have to get a lot of content in there in 250 words. It's the one time we, you know, because I often say to, to students I work with, when you're reading a personal statement, you don't want it to sound like a cut and paste from a college paper because it's a personal statement. But this is one where you can be a little more or a lot more academic and yet, you know, also still don't want to cut and paste. Yeah. And Aaron, as the writer among our trio, as the expert in that field, 
how do you advise students to approach a 250 word statement that is going to be, I think the reason Yale has this here is because there are faculty reviewing applications there and they kind of want to get a sense of your intellectual chops and an area of your particular interests or expertise. But 250 words isn't a lot of words. How do you advise folks approach that? Right. I mean, so I think topic selection is the most important thing. You want to, well, I can back up also and say that I think the part of the reason for the essay is that it is a test of your ability to construct an argument in that small space, which actually means that what you write about, I think, matters less than the way you write. But that still means you need to be careful about your topic because it needs to be something that's sufficiently limited, that it is, that it's reducible to 250 words. So this would not be the time to say, I, I'm going to write about my personal solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict I've, in 250 <laughs> words. I've seen that. I have seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's tricky also because professors are going to have their own strong opinions about that, you know? So you have to be careful about that. You don't want to be making like a super nuanced legal argument, I don't think, because you're unlikely to know more about it than the professors at Yale Law School. So I, I think what it is, is it needs to be a, a little bit distant from the professor, you know, what you Im imagine might be the professor's areas of expertise, but it needs to be sufficiently familiar that you don't need to supply a lot of background information. You need to be able to, for example, like present a sort of conventional argument in the first paragraph and then leave yourself enough space to sort of upset that argument and propose some other argument. So some ones that I've seen... One guy, I, so I'm just going to, I've just been thinking about students who actually got into Yale. One guy wrote a really interesting essay about movement in California to completely abolish immigration detention. And this guy was entirely focused on immigrant rights. He had done a, a lot of work with immigrants in detention. But his concern was, you know, this this sounds fine on the surface. It, it appears to align with everything, you know, I and many people I work with believe on the surface. But the reality is that if we abolish it in California, then the immigrant population will be redistributed and are very likely to suffer worse treatment in the places where they're going to be sent. And that was, that was the whole argument. He proposed a, a little bit like a sort of a an idea for reform in the end. But that worked really well because he, he set up an argument. You know, it's an issue that everybody's familiar with. He discussed it in a way that would not have appeared controversial, I, don't, I think, to anyone, given that it was just about humane treatment and was able to make a relatively nuanced argument because he had all that, ba he could assume that background info. Mm -hmm. Well, and that topic makes me think of another potential academic school-specific question, which is that Georgetown has historically asked a question, what opinion of yours would your friends least expect? So kind of what's an unpopular, or I guess that doesn't have to be an unpopular opinion. It can just be they may not know that you have such strong opinions about the prison, the immigration prison system, or about who knows what. I'm trying to think of another good academic one. A lot of the students I've worked with have treated that question more on a personal level. So my friends would be very surprised to find that I'm passionate about the Eagles category post Joe Walsh, that I'm more of a pre Joe Walsh than a post Joe Walsh person or who knows what. I had a good one, a guy who grew up in Turks and Caicos. He wrote a, a passionate essay about how snow is better than the beach. <laughs> I was helping him. Incorrect. Incorrect. In exactly. <laughs> incorrect. I was helping him with this in like that. <laughs> that is a, an unexpected opinion. <laughs> but it was like late November for me, you know, and I was just, it was just agony to help him build this argument. As it's sleeting outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Do you, I, I think that the Georgetown one has changed over the years too. Did it used to be what's an unpopular opinion? I, I feel like it used to be that, but now it's what's an opinion of yours that your friends would least expect. Correct. Which is significantly different, you know. Right. It, and, right. And less, maybe less dangerous too. I, I feel like the first one, it, it was a little tricky to write because you, you that opens the door to some potential sticky wickets. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. You know which one? Well, now we've moved past academic, but the one that is, I think, underused for Georgetown is the one minute video. I don't see too many people taking that option, but I think it could be really a fun one. Most people end up, who I work with, do the top 10 list, but th- there's some really other good options here too. Oh, absolutely. And I was going to say the only other academic one that really kind of comes to mind is that Stanford has several supplements of which one is effectively, if you could do a TED talk to your classmates, what would it be on? And kind of like the least expected opinion, this can be an academic topic or it could be a personal topic. So there are some students I've worked with who have treated this on a more academic level to talk about their professional background and a topic of particular importance for them in that context. Or perhaps if they're a student who's in their senior year and they're doing a thesis project, they dive more into their thesis area. But then again, I've also had the students who've talked about how they want to tell their classmates more about their family's cultural background because perhaps uh, they've had to explain this to their friends ad nauseum over the years, and so they just like to establish it right from the get-go. <laughs> you know, so so really the academic school-specific statements are pretty limited. And again, the flagship one there is going to be the Yale 250, so congratulations to Yale for cornering that market. But now let's transition into more the fun questions, the get-to-know-you questions, or they can be fun. They can also be nerve-wracking. So, Brigitte, like you said, Georgetown has a, a wide variety of these questions. There's the least expected opinion. There's the top 10 facts. There's the one-minute video. And just to describe those briefly for folks, the top 10 list is basically just give us a top 10 list about anything. The one-minute video is much like that. Just please provide a one-minute video about a topic of your choosing and load it to YouTube and give us the URL for your video. And I guess, Brigitte, so what are what are some of the, the approaches that you've seen to some of those questions before, especially the video, since you've said it's underutilized? Yeah, I mean, it's it's underutilized to the extent that I think I've only worked with one or two students who have done it. But, the, but they are really fun when you see them. It, it stands out. You know, it's it stands out because it's something that's not just words on a page, right? So I, I would encourage folks who are comfortable, and I guess in this generation, more and more are comfortable using this kind of a thing to, to really think about it. On the top 10, I think it's important to frame. You don't just want to put a list. You want to have a, and again, you don't have very many words, but do some kind of frame, like, you know, top 10 books, top 10 meals, top 10 whatevers, and then put a little bit of information just so that, that what you're doing has more life than just a list. Hey, do you guys have an opinion on whether it should be revert, you know, chronological, like one to ten or ten to one? I've had someone ask me that. I was like, huh, Ooh. that's interesting. I don't. I've seen it both ways. I don't think there's a right wrong, but I usually think I see one to ten. What about you guys? Yeah, as a David Letterman aficionado, I believe that the proper order is to go from ten down to one, mm-hmm. with one being the most important. Yeah, you, you leave your audience in in suspense yeah, through that means. But Aaron, what do you think? I like going from 10 to 1, but I hardly ever see it. And then I also sort of suspect there's a kind of like a psychological reality where the first item the admissions person sees is the one that's likeliest to stick in the mind. And then it sort of descends from there because it's going to be they're going to read it after everything else, you know. Hook them in so much with a real hot take at number 10 that surely, surely they have to keep reading <laughs> after that one. Yeah. Well, on the note of the video, I think what's also really cool, and again, to sound sound like an old person, 
Just video capabilities are so much more readily available. Editing software is more readily available than it used to be even 10 years ago. So students can put together something with reasonable minimal effort that looks pretty good. And for Georgetown, they do have group interviews, but this can kind of be a one-minute personal interview. One technique that career centers coach up students on is, is to work on your elevator pitch. If you had 30 seconds or one minute with the hiring partner at or the internship coordinator at the place where you hope to, to be employed, what would you tell them about yourself and your professional background? And that can be that Georgetown video. But it can also be something fun. So I've seen students talk about their professional life and maybe some service work that they do. I've had students with that one minute video, some students who are artists or poets, read a poem and, and set it to a visual background or to present some of their their arts and to talk about its importance for who they are and what they want to bring to law school. So you have, you have a lot of opportunities with that. And on the top 10 list, I know the, I try to have fun with that, probably more for my personality than the students, but, you know, just to jazz things up. But I've also advised students, it could be a good opportunity that for that section of your resume where you list your interests and activities to maybe give a little more time and space to that. So, for example, I'm thinking of the student who we had to coach him up a little bit on adding that section of his resume. He initially had as as an interest rock music, to which I told him, you know, that that's pretty broad. Like, let, let's let's drill down a little bit deeper. What, what kind of rock music are we talking about? To which he said classic rock. And again, that's that's real broad. Let's keep going. Late 70s classic rock. OK, keep going. And eventually he said, I'm really into progressive rock, particularly in Genesis. Yes, etc. So bands of that nature. And I told him that is interesting. I, I don't like progressive rock, but at least hearing that immediately lets me know what you're into. And so on the top 10 list, he went through his top 10 favorite prog rock albums from the late 70s and really, really brought a lot of his personality into it, which was kind of neat. So it, it, the top 10 list can also be an opportunity for that. I think it is, like Brigitte said, important to think about the framing, too. So like the more even just like what, what is the title of that document? You know, if the, the more information you can give the reader in the title, the less you're obliged to explain in each item. And that's important because you only have 250 words like you really can't. Sometimes you can't even really include a full sentence for each item, you know, so you just have like a phrase. I had one, I'm trying to think of the ones that I, I think my favorite one ever was this guy. He was such an interesting guy. He, like, he grew up, you know, really, really low income in Stockton, California and, and worked in his parents' shop all his life. And he was all the time on the side making like chocolate truffles, you know. <laughs> He learned like confectionery, like which is a pretty delicate operation and requires like a lot of time and commitment. And anyway, the, it was like here are the top 10 truffles that I make, you know. And then the essay is really pleasant because you're thinking about truffles, but it's also just a reminder, like, look at this, look at this remarkable hobby that I have, you know, think about it for the 30 seconds you spend reading this. Well, and one additional workaround we found to, or that a student found, I shouldn't say we, a student proposed, which was cool, was a workaround to the, the word limit is to provide visuals. So she created some PowerPoint slides. And so, it, and it was a, a visual about her favorite music artist and, and the outfit, her favorite outfits for that artist. So it is a, a very visual top 10 list. But by providing that visual, that allowed her to, instead of describing the outfit, to really comment more on each one in brief order, which is really cool. So yeah, you know, 
when Georgetown says, tell us more about yourself, I, I really, I hope they mean it because heck, that's what I'm really encouraging our students to do that. You know, lean into who you are and your personality. The reason that one is so popular and, and I really encourage it is because it is different. It is a time you can be fun, different, quirky, creative, unique, whatever. And it's not all in words. So, you know, any of these other ones are also fine, but it, it, it ends up being, you know, yet another mini essay, whereas this really is something unique that, that stands out. So, and I think similar to that is the Columbia fun facts that I also encourage people to do there. You know, I mean, I'm sure whether that moves the needle or not is not really what's important there, but it's, it's an opportunity to put something on the page that's different and show, show something unique about yourself. How do you guys feel about that one? The one that I really remember is just like... This woman who was like pretty, pretty straight shooter, military, you know, you, from the resume, you just get a sense of like, this is a person who can be relied upon to do X, Y, Z. And then the fun fact was that she once just picked up and moved to the Mississippi Delta because she was interested in experiencing another way of life. She was from like, you know, a highly urbanized part of the country and also a person of color. So there was a lot at stake for her in doing this. And it's kind of a wild decision and not the kind of thing that you would have understood she would ever have done from anything else that she'd written. That catches the attention a little bit more than someone's fun fact being, I can juggle up to five tennis balls at once. <laughs> Although I don't know, that's kind of fun too. It is nice when it's it's something that's different and unexpected that not necessarily goes against the grain of who you think they are, but just a different aspect. It's your time to be three-dimensional or show your three-dimensionality rather than, you know, yeah, just be another academic moment or another serious moment. So to that end, let's talk about another school that provides a lot of those different options, which is Stanford. And so historically, Stanford has, so they have the one that can be kind of academically related. So you, you can teach a one-day class. It's a TED Talk style class. What would you talk about with your classmates? But then beyond that, they have at least for this past year, three other prompts. One is if you can talk with anyone living or less living from any time in history, what's the one question you'd ask them? What, what would you want to talk about? That's one. Next one is the library in the town where you grew up has been destroyed. Choose three books to contribute to rebuilding the library's collection. And then the one that really seems to get the most derive the most paranoia in the students I work with. Music has a way of setting tone and mood for any occasion. With this in mind, pick three songs or musical works to be playing in the background as the admissions committee reviews your materials. And I think that one gets into the headspace because it seems like students really psych themselves out a great deal. What does Stanford want to hear there? Do they want something that's more professional? Is it okay if I choose songs that have swear words, curse words in them, etc.? So, I don't know, how do you guys suggest that your students approach those Again, these should be more fun topics. On the other hand, Stanford, which I don't know if Stanford as a university has a reputation for being fun and quirky. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I'm going to answer no on bad language just because, you know, why? This is, you know, you're putting this up in front of admissions committee. They're probably older and stodgier than you are. And so no. But I do think it is a moment to be fun and you don't have to pick serious music. It, you can pick a range. I think lots of folks like to pick a range of music. And really, it's more about why, right? Like what, why are you picking those three songs? What, how is it meaningful to you? How does it maybe connect with your application and different aspects of your application? I think people do a great job on, on, on that one. I think that one, too, is important. I guess this is what I said for Georgetown and Yale, but it's, the framing is important. It's another really short essay. So you need to, it's going to be more memorable if you can turn it into sort of like a, 
one argument. So like the three songs are somehow themed. The the three books have a have a through line. The songs just like I don't know. I don't want to forget to mention like there's a lot of potential pitfalls there. Like don't don't write the meta application essay. Don't talk about filling out your applications. And you know that I guess it's just the mention of the admissions committee in the prompt that gets people on that on that track. But also, I think avoid things that you have you might be able to guess other people are going to do. So like the three songs that like are you know motivational in some way. You know, but I, I had a guy th- this year. He got into Yale and withdrew his application, so we don't know what Stanford would have said. But he wrote about electronic dance music, and each one, which was something that strangely he had been listening to his entire life since he was like five years old because he had an older brother. And so it was really about memory. It wasn't about music. It was about, you know, this song is kind of hooked to this moment of my life. And I remember my brother and I are, you know, in this little bungalow in, in South Florida, and, and then he, you know, moved forward to two other moments. I think the library essay works the same way. You don't want to just like list, you know, the Bible, 100 Years of Solitude and, you know, whatever else, War and Peace, you know? I think it's it's got to say something about you. So I, I'm remembering one that like you maybe and also the where you come from, right? Because that's what the prompt is asking. So I remember I had one student who was Mexican. She was indigenous from Mexico. She spoke, a, a you know, a language that only like, you know, 10,000 people in the world speak. And she had these, I can't, I, I don't want to like, you know, mess it up by trying to remember what they were, but they were, they were books that had to do with her own culture and the experience of sort of like cultural annihilation that was, that was part of the rest of her application. So, you know, what's interesting about that is that I, I also read this prompt literally to some extent that, I mean, in essence, what they're asking is give us three of your favorite books. But if it's specifically to provide to the library in the town where you grew up, I mean, what books are people going to check out from the library? So some Sometimes when I'm working with students who want to suggest the three, I don't know, canonical books from their specific academic area, their niche academic area, this certainly tells the committee something more about you. It is an opportunity to go more into those areas. On the other hand, dude, no one's going to ever check out those books from the local public library. Like, I I can guarantee you now, you'll hand those to the librarian and they will say, thanks, you know, where meanwhile, providing the books that you just mentioned. So if this is the, the library in your town, yeah, you know, that speaks to your community and those may actually be checked out. But also just throw in a copy of, I don't know, Paddington or Winnie the Pooh because, you know, those will get checked out. I like the kids' books ones. I've seen a bunch of those. I like those a lot because those, those are also about memory, you know, about where where the person has come from and how they've grown up. Or or things that were really important to their development as from childhood to, to young adulthood, whether it be, you know, an LGBTQ book that really helped them come to terms with who they are and, and move forward with their life in that sense, or any of the ones that help them bridge a, a complicated time, you know, towards the future. I think those end up being really beautiful. And whenever I have a student working on the, the Stanford songs, I always I always look them up. I have a whole Spotify playlist of all the songs that my <laughs> students have have written about. So it's fun. It's fun to it's fun to get that that point of view of a you know a different point of view about a person that you think you know you're really getting to know. Absolutely. Well, and I've told students if push comes to shove on the song one. Another thing you can do, speaking of Spotify, is just whatever streaming service you use, if you use one, Spotify or Amazon, why don't you open that up? Because the streaming services always provide a year in review of the songs you've played the most. See what are those three songs. And if they're not too embarrassing, you know, that's a good place to start and also a good framing device, too. And then to riff on those for a little bit of time. Brigitte, I, I do like the thought of you having a 200 song playlist. It's fun. Memories of students past. Yeah, no, absolutely. What are some of the more popular ones? Do you remember? any right now? 
I'd have to actually look it up on Spotify. I don't think I've ever had the same song twice, though, to be honest. I mean, so I don't think I think people really are. I mean, I don't know if you guys have, but it's it's there's such an array of songs and we're asking them to pick from, you know, any anywhere from, you know, birth to, to, to applying to law school. So I'm not sure I've ever had the same song twice. It'd be it'd be interesting to look someday. I, I did want to ask one question about Stanford, because it's a one day class. That's a long time. Does that factor into how you write it? It's not a TED Talk. It's a one-day class. So that, It's a one-day class. Yeah, so I want to riff on that for a minute for you, ask you guys. But then also, yep. can it be about literally anything? I tend to think yes. Some folks are a little scared to go on something that's not academically oriented, but I've had people, you know, do yoga because that's important too, et cetera. So what do you think about that? Both the one day and then is pretty much any topic that's remotely relevant to a law school class fair game. I think yes to both in the sense of the one day class. Think about how you can hold your attention for one day. I mean, we've all been at one day conferences, right? And we've been at one day conferences where you're just sitting in a chair for eight hours. And we've been in other conferences where you're getting up and moving and the speakers are a little more dynamic, etc. So I, I encourage students to keep that in mind. But then topic wise, I think it's okay to move beyond the academy for things like you mentioned. If a student is a fitness instructor, if they have a musical background, if they have some sort of other aspect of their personality or background that's important to them, that'd probably make a more dynamic talk than a one-day class on your, I'm trying to think of a super niche area, your econ thesis. Your class isn't going to sit there for eight hours listening to you talk about your thesis in that super dry area. But what do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I think, well, there's always a question of like, you want the essay to be interesting, full stop. And in that sense, you just have to pick something interesting. You also have to be responsive to the prompt because lawyers are obsessed with instructions and rules. So it's like, I, sorry, Bricky died in me. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, no offense. And um, you're right. So like, I do think, you know, the class needs to be something that is partly it can be a recycling of a Yale 250 or articulating some really interesting idea. But then there needs to be some participatory element, some some nod toward the prompt itself. You know, if this is going to be a one day class, well, what is that day going to look like? And But I, yeah, I think I think, you know, almost all topics are in bounds. I tend to think that it needs to be focused, sort of optimistic, uplifting in some way. So if it is about some like esoteric, I don't know, some special type of like hot yoga or something, you know, where you like go in a sweat lodge and pass out and they drag you out of there. Like it needs to be somehow about how is that? How is that helpful to you? You know, like what has that meant to you? Where has it gotten you? I've seen, you know, great ones about like meditation. I had the most memorable one from this year, I think for me was one about a tea, tea ceremony. And it was partly about all the, you know, different, there was a tea tasting component and it was about, I don't it ended up being a sort of wider thing about Chinese culture. Ultimately, I did order some of the teas that she referred to and, and it was like a pretty wild, they're just not, not things that like make any sense to the American palate, which was fun. And I, you know, I ordered them because I could tell that that was going to be the case from this interesting description of them. See, that's why we love what we do, because we get to have snapshots into the lives of young adults and see what they're into and the, the vast diversity. And I think that's what the law schools are looking at, too, right? It, it, it adds a sense of a complex student body with all kinds of backgrounds, interests, activities, influences. It's, it's just really interesting. Well, and on that note of the law schools trying to get a sense of of these young adults, to pivot a little bit, there was a new question that we saw on the University of Virginia's application this year that is required and threw some of our students for a bit of a loop. And it's a little bit different. So this prompt was asking students to reflect on a time when they had to exhibit resilience. 
So they faced a challenge, they overcame the challenge, etc. And then the whammy there beyond the topic was the word limit, the character limit, only 1700 characters, which is about a paragraph. So this brought up a lot of questions. I mean, I had some students who are survivors ask, do we think that UVA really wants to hear about this moment? To which I, my thought was, I don't think so, unless you want to talk about it, but you shouldn't feel obliged to talk about it. Or more broadly, do they really want to hear about the worst moment I've ever had? So, you know, Brigitte, how, how are you advising students to approach that subject? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one where it can go in, well, like all of them, it can go in so many different directions. Most of the time, I'm, I'm feeling like my students are, are picking something a little more work-related or school-related where there was a challenge and they had to overcome it and they learned something and they maybe apply that lesson going forward or something like that. And I think that's what UVA is going for. This came up recently, so I wasn't there anymore when we developed this. But it does say law school and the practice of law are you know, both rewarding and challenging. So they, it does seem like it, it's more academic and, and career related. If someone wants to write about something more personal, I think that's okay as well. But, but I don't think students should feel that they're being asked to put up their most private and, and difficult moment for, for inspection if they don't want to. Yeah. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I think I heard a lot of, I got a lot of anxiety this year about like why, you know, my life has been, it, it hasn't been horrible. So what am I supposed to say? You know, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> so, so, so that would be the appropriate time for the meta essay. Right, the course. most resilience I've ever had to display was coming up with a moment of resilience for this oh, statement man, right I, here. I think that somebody did propose that. Maybe they were joking. I don't know. Like, I don't think UVA is interested in punishing anybody who hasn't had a horrible life, you know? So I think it's this one, and I guess all of these too, but this one in particular felt like a, you know, a sort of secret test of an applicant's judgment. So like, stay within yourself. Don't impute a significance to a moment that, you know, doesn't quite earn that significance. And by the same token, don't sort of like share a set of truly wild obstacles that can't really be described in this in this small box. I think it's more like, Pick a moment that says something about you, you know, I, there's the, let me try to think. Oh, th so a very memorable one from this year was I had a student who was in Shanghai where they were just, they were just locked in their apartment for months and months and months because of COVID protocols. I mean, in like true, not like the American way of being locked inside where we all, I just like, you know, wandered around in town and stuff. They were truly locked in and she had just moved into this apartment and it was like a shared sort of co-op co type of thing. So there were four other people in there she had never met before. <laughs> So it was like, it's like a setup for a sort of like, you know, dystopian reality show. But she talked about how difficult that was. But that was only really like the first two sentences of this response. And the rest of it was like this kind of ad hoc society that they built together, these these five strangers. And, and there was all kinds of charming detail, like they all came from different regions in China. So they would have this sort of like everyone would pick a night to cook and they would they would be obliged to share some like special dish from their home region. And so it was really like resilience, yes, because this was an enormously challenging situation, but but it was a very joyful essay. As a brief aside, not a pet peeve of mine, but a disappointment of mine. We're now starting to see TV shows and movies that reflect on March 2020 through the present moment and COVID restrictions and lockdowns. And there are those that hit the zeitgeist. And then there are those where I watch them and go, wait a second, that's not what lockdown was like. Get out of here. This is what my I, I've just finished a novel, which is going out to editors this week, which is partly partly about that. 
I'm pretty worried about, you know, people coming to this book with different experiences of COVID than I, but hopefully, I mean, it's mostly about kids, you know, I had kids, tiny, tiny kids during COVID. So that's what it is. This is a sales plug for Aaron's book, obviously. So, well, I haven't sold it to publishers yet. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. it may just be this is something I reflect sadly on later that I talked about this book and no one ever saw it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, so going back to that prompt, I think what you learned from that experience is an important piece. It's not just what happened to you, but what did you do with that information and what did you do with that experience and how did you, in some ways, come out stronger? I think that's kind of the, the arc that they're looking for. What do you guys think? I think so. I'm taking them at the wording of the prompt, which is in and, and from working in a law school environment, which is, you know, the people coming into a place like UVA Law are really smart and really talented. And yet there is a grade curve. Someone's going to get a C on not someone. A lot of people are going to get C's on their exams and they want to know that this isn't going to cause you to crumble or or at least they're trying to make sure that this isn't going to cause you to crumble. So either they're trying to learn that about you or they're trying to give you a heads up about that and then seeing what you write about. So do we want to point out maybe Pepperdine, for example? Pepperdine has a faith statement in which you are meant to write a statement about what faith means to you. And it does not have to be about the Christian faith, even though it is a Christian school, but something about your own faith. And I've had lots of, I guess, because I'm based in California, I've had lots of students apply there. And they always write really good essays. Of course, it's easier to write if you have faith or have a religious background. But I've also had people write a little bit more of like an ethical, moral orientation and and what drives that and, and what it's meant to them. How about you guys? Have you ever had a really challenging Pepperdine statement? Missions as someone who just couldn't couldn't come up with something to write about. It is optional, so I suppose that's always an answer. Don't write one. Have you had folks go that route? I've had students go the no statement route, and I think I've only had one or two where I've advised them, you know, you should be yourself, but also you may want to evaluate whether this would be the right fit for you, too. And and not to take yourself out of the running, per se, but if you're going to write a statement that runs pretty counter to what they're providing. And, and this isn't to say that you I am very confident that Pepperdine is a very welcoming and inclusive environment of students from all kinds of faith backgrounds or none at all. But probably you shouldn't be anti-religion in attending Pepperdine, you're probably not going to have the most optimal Pepperdine experience, one would think. So that occasionally leads to the conversation of if we're applying only because of its location in Southern California, well, heck, there are a lot of Southern California law schools, right? So is there, you know, are there others that may be a better fit for you? What what do you think, Aaron? Yeah, that's, I was going to say, like, it's an opportunity to think about whether it is the best place. But I also think I've seen a lot of good essays for Pepperdine from from people who don't don't have anything they would describe as faith because it's it it just requires them to think a little bit about what faith might mean in a much much broader sense you know i mean how are the you know these these sort of ideals that are you know for for Pepperdine they may be hooked to a christian worldview but they are you know for a lot of us i mean they're they're judeo christian ideals they may be you know important to secular humanists also that kind of thing you know it, it's like how how do these values what do they mean to you how do, how do they manifest themselves in your life and i think that if nothing else that statement which is optional provides a good opportunity for pepperdine to brand themselves to their applicants here is who we are and here's what our community is about and now how do you see yourself against that similarly would be i think the northeastern optional statement, which is about uh, Northeastern law is really well known for its sense of service, 
its engagement with the community and all that. So they have an optional statement that basically says, hey, you know, we're well known for this, that we have an A plus grade from National Jurist, which is a, a pre-law magazine for our practical training. And we have a signature co-op program that guarantees that you're going to work for a full year in a, in a field of interest or a field of law that's of interest to you. So, hey, which of these fields would you like to, to do for a co-op and why? So this allows them to brand themselves while also inviting you to reflect on the fit of the school. And I know that, you know, a co-op is a little bit different from tell us about how the faith affiliation, the mission of Pepperdine jives with what you want from a legal education. But again, I think it's a similar opportunity for the schools to brand themselves. On this note, because a couple of these statements have been optional, the UVA one is required, but let's assume that these are all optional. How do we approach the eternal question of, if it's not required, should I still submit it even though it's not required? And I, th I think we address this a little bit with the, the Y school X statements. But Aaron, how, how do you approach that when you're advising students? Well, I tell them that they have so few opportunities to say anything to the admissions committee that they should really do their best to take it. And if a school is you know, including these questions on the application, then it's fair to assume they would like to see a response, you know, so I think I, I would need to hear a good reason that the student is not submitting the essay. I agree with that, Aaron. It's an opportunity to bring a different element in front of the committee. And that's different from a personal statement, different from a diversity statement. And just take the opportunity. These are fun essays to write relatively, and they're short relatively. And so it's just a great opportunity to do it. I think when people say they don't have anything to write, what that really means is like they're anxious about the range of possible topics, like more anxious than they need to be. They're probably not considering something more personal, which is probably going to be more compelling anyway. Or they're overwhelmed with the process, which we understand. But but that's why we, you know, we kind of lay it out in a nice way so that you can focus one essay at a time. That's a good way to do it so that you just have a breath between these essays and just can take half hour, knock out the Yale 250 or knock out the fun facts. And you realize when you do that a few times, it really doesn't take more than that to at least get something on the page and start working with it. And for the students that I work with who feel overwhelmed, I also try to categorize the schools that they're applying to. So if it's one of your top schools, one of your dream schools, you probably want to do everything you can to to give them the full sense of yourself. So if this is not one of your top schools, you know, that's okay. If you don't feel like you can provide something compelling or interesting or authentic, that may be a case where it's better to say nothing than to say something that doesn't really speak to you. So that's one category. If it's your, one of your top schools, you should really consider doing everything you can on the front end of the admissions process to optimize your opportunities on the back end. But then another category would be those students who may not seemingly be a good fit for your school, where if you're the admissions officer, you may be wondering, why in the world is this student applying to our school? And in this case, you can make that argument directly to the admissions committee of, here's why I see the fit. And, then, and here again, I'm coming back to say the, the Pepperdine optional statement, where I imagine the majority of Pepperdine's enrolling students come from the West Coast or the Southwest. And so if you're that student who's coming from a different part of the country, who maybe is not of a Christian faith background, you know, Pepperdine's admissions committee may wonder, gosh, are you applying simply because we're in Southern California? But instead, you can make the direct argument to them. Here's how I see myself fitting in to your school. Here's what I want to get out of it. And so those are the two categories I try to provide to my students when working with them as far as, you know, you should really consider submitting these statements. An additional category that is kind of in this field, but 
also a bit separate, are scholarship statements. So some schools do provide the opportunity to apply to specific scholarship programs on their applications. Really, again, the kind of sort of here is admissions committees will often read those statements. So it is another opportunity for you to provide some depth to your application. But really, they're meant more for the scholarship program. They're kind of on the side, so to speak. So as you're filling out your applications, keep an eye for on those, but also don't worry drastically about those unless it is one of your top programs or unless you feel that this is a good fit for what you specifically want to do at a particular school. So Brigitte and Aaron, any, any further comments or any other prompts you want to throw out there that are coming to mind right now for, for schools? I don't want to fail to mention the fact that Stanford sometimes proposes prompts that generate terrible essays and then they disappear, you know? So there was like a couple of years ago where they, <laughs> they asked if you could have $10,000 to travel the world or a trip to the moon, what, what would you choose? And there was just like, I don't think I saw any, any like sort of intelligible response to that because it's a bizarre question, you know? Ten grand doesn't get you far, but if you combine it with your frequent flyer miles, <laughs> I, I was going to. I saw a couple charming essays, let's call them, that I thought were good, but I had I, I until you said that I hadn't realized that they took that out. I kind of forgot about that one. You think it's because they were bad? I think just awkward to read. Well, I, yeah. I think it's probably they didn't produce essays that said much about the person. I mean, that's probably true because people spent so much time trying to position trying to trying to position themselves and figure out what like what what the question was meant to elicit you know i think i saw one that was nice just about that was mostly about safety concerns about the trip to the moon <laughs> which was kind of but i don't know you know is that what the admissions people really want to see i mean it was sort of pleasant yeah but... that's fair i mean like a trip to the moon in 1970 right. yeah. or a trip to the moon using the latest spacex rockets that blew up yeah, and yeah. minute into the, the process, you know? Huh. What about the one, the other Stanford one where, you know, if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, you know, can we agree that Jesus is probably not one of them just because it's <laughs> that too would be cliche very interesting. I, I, You know what? It's so cliche that I don't think how many people would actually write it, you know? <laughs> well, I have seen very few good responses to that one. And, and Michigan asks a similar one. But in fairness to the people who are super cliche, I've reflected on who would I mention? And one of the top contenders would be Abraham Lincoln, which is super cliche. <laughs> but there's a family connection because so much of my family resides in Springfield, Illinois. And my mother actually lives a mile from the tomb, from Lincoln's tomb. So there is a greater family aspect of matters, along with the greater historic stuff. But but that's a good point that even the cliched ones, if like grandma or something like that, if there's if if what comes after that is unique and interesting and poignant or whatever, it's still fine, even if the, the, the category is a bit cliched. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the one where I do tell students, you know, I'm not going to push you hard on this one, because again, here's my story where basically I'm saying as silly as it sounds, Lincoln, because et cetera, et cetera. I saw a good one that was about there's some like I, I can't remember what the issue was, but some some sort of controversial issue in Korean history, controversial in the sense that they don't historians don't understand what happened at some moment. And the, the essay was about, you know, the whoever was some kind of ruler from that period who would have known the reality. But it was mostly like a meditation on what we, you know, what how much of these how much of this history we don't know, you know, or what we take for granted and then what we actually have no idea about, which was fun. 
Well, and, and as someone who's major in undergrad and, and has a master's degree in history, that always gets me too. like the, the people who approach history because they feel like it's a set narrative. Guys, like we don't know what was going through the minds of anyone. We know what they wrote down. But how many of us are honest to ourselves in our diaries and our letters? And how many of us are writing towards a theoretical audience that we hope will be sympathetic to us, whether that be ourselves or whether that be who knows what. If we're someone of note, we know that they're going to read our memoirs 100 years from now, 200 years from now. And by the way, no one should be approaching their their Stanford supplementals thinking that this is going to be a part of their portfolio for Nobel Prize consideration <laughs> 50 years from now. So like, don't worry, but you're not writing for posterity, guys. Just pull up Spotify. What are the top three songs? Run with it. Hey guys, one other one we haven't talked about that's a super shorty is the the Harvard writing prompt. I think that really trips up people because they feel they have to say something because who didn't, you know, who made it through college without writing something significant? But on the other hand, they're saying including but not limited to a thesis, a peer-reviewed or published article or a white paper. What if the writing is somewhat less significant like someone who wrote blog entries for a pub, you know a published blog for for years i mean is that sufficient a college paper that wasn't a thesis is that sufficient what do you think there i've heard harvard people say that the concern is the nature of the supervision for some reason like they're they're asking about that we should also say that it is 300 characters not 300 words a lot of people who can approach it as if it were an essay are confusing the characters for words yeah, so there's only so much you can say, but I think people are nervous not to say anything, right? To to leave that blank. What, what, do we have any intel on that? Is it okay to leave that blank? Definitely. You know, I think the population of people who have written white papers is pretty minimal. <laughs> <laughs> so, or at least the ones who've written white papers and, and are applying to Harvard Law. So no, it, it's okay not to put something there. I tend to agree that my line for significance is something more than would be produced through the course of a 400 level college class. So like a, a term paper, for example. I, I think it's something more advanced than that, something that took more than a semester to research and write and or for the blog post one, I tend to think as long as it's not something horribly unprofessional, I don't know, I, I, I feel like that's an OK one. But really, probably what they're going for at the heart are the more academic papers, a la the, the Yale 250-esque matter. So do they want to hear that you are a widely... You are the authority on diners, dives, and drive-throughs in your particular part of the country and have a blog that regularly hits 500 to 1,000 people. I think that's interesting, and I think that's cool. I don't know if that's what Harvard's going for, really, though perhaps they'd be interested in getting your recommendations for the next time they're in a lawfare in your part of the woods, you know? So, yeah. Well, you made a joke about white paper. I, that struck me before, too. Like, they just put that in there like people know what a white paper is. <laughs> you know, I actually Googled it, but I, I won't bore everyone with what it says. But I do think it's in the nonprofit world where I come from. I do know what a white paper is, or certainly within our context. But it kind of surprised me that they just put that out there as if it were self-explanatory. I think that that's absolutely fantastic, though, because it, it really is just it's a very Harvard thing. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. Like, oh, yeah, of course, your, your, your white papers, etc. Not your blue papers, though. We don't want to hear about those. No, get, get those ones out of here. Okay, so I feel like we've, we probably hit the end of this conversation. So as, as we wrap up here, and as a reminder to our audience, if you go to our website, sevensage.com, you'll see our admissions course, where we actually talk a, a lot about these statements, too. So you can find that as an additional resource. But Birgitta and Aaron, are there any last second parting thoughts that you'd like to offer our audience on how to approach these school-specific statements? 
For me, I, I, I want to encourage students to congratulate themselves, ha- having gotten through the bigger, heavier, more important, or more time-consuming essays. Take a moment to relax, and then try to have fun with these short essays, because they really are short. They can be fun. They're interesting. And to not let kind of the fatigue of the application process get them down, but rather to you know refresh and then dive in, have fun. Yeah, I would add, like think about it that way. Think about you, you've just gotten through the big documents. You can take a breath. And then I would ask yourself, what is it that you didn't say in those other essays that that might be fun for people to hear or add some important context? And that's what these essays are are for. They are like they're an addition. You know, they're they're not a place to make a big argument, like we said about addenda and stuff like that. They're a place to sort of add a little shading. But I think that they can be like a good one can make a difference in the sense that it, a good one might mean that your application is the one that admissions officers are thinking about when they you know go to lunch. In an hour. Or when they when you're admitted and they meet you at the admitted student open house and they say, actually, I, too, have strong opinions about pre Joe Walsh versus <laughs> post Joe Walsh Eagles. So let's talk more about that. Well, hey, thanks, Brigitte. Thanks, Aaron. We hope that you out there enjoy this discussion about school specific statements. And remember to please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and join us next time as we keep diving into the ins and outs of applying to law school here on the Seven Sage podcast. 